You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo Piliucci, it's great to see you. Nice seeing you, Dan. How are you holding up? Um, well, I'm doing okay. Um, I mean, we in Missouri are not ground zero the way you are in New York, although your background is allowing me to blissfully forget that you're in the hot zone. Um, That's right. Right now I'm on top of the Acropolis in, in, in Athens. <laughs> um, my parents, though, live on Long Island in Nassau County, which is almost as badly hit as New York City. And um, as you know, my father is 92, has congestive heart failure. I'm assuming he is in the highest risk category of somebody yes. who, if they get this, they're in trouble. Yeah. So I'm yeah. obviously concerned. You have family in Italy. Um, um, and, uh, so you've actually been, you've been worrying for a lot longer than the rest of us because it, it hit there. Yeah. Um, um, Massimo, have you started, has, has, has City College and the Graduate Center, have they all gone to online? Are you teaching online now? Yes, we've been doing that with that, uh, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and actually, surprisingly, considering that CUNY is a behemoth of an organization, uh, it has gone fairly smoothly. I mean, uh, the, the school decided immediately on a, on a, instructional recess, basically, giving a week to faculty to catch up with online uh, technology and, and providing uh, courses uh, to, get, to get us started. I, I had already mine set up, so it's, it was easier transition for me. But um, they've done that, and then we, we, did, uh, we taught on, online for a week, and then uh, some colleges realized that actually the students might not be uh, necessarily equipped in terms especially of hardware. So we're now into our instructional recess for another few days to allow colleges to provide students with, with tablets and laptops and things like that, uh, those who need it. And then we're going to resume teaching Thursday. So when you say you're gone online, how, how online have you gone? In other words, are you doing live with 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 yeah. classes or are you just recording things and doing using message boards and yeah so those are the two methods right we actually uh have been uh, sort of encouraged by the administration to go asynchronous in other words to put you know pre pre-recorded lectures and things like that so the so students can have access the, is it, so it's time. not to crash the system uh, is the word no it's crash? Most, no mostly mostly uh, you know we use uh, blackboard um um Collaborate Ultra, which is actually a pretty good tool. And some of us could use Zoom, actually. CUNY has gotten a, a professional license uh, for uh, the City College. has gotten a professional license for all the faculty. Um, now, those are, the systems are doing fine. The, the, the concern is, you know, the, the students are at home and they may not actually be too, able to connect at the right time because now the, the whole thing works differently. My class, I, my class I teach, I'm teaching two classes this semester. I just asked my students, I said, you know, is it, I think it would be better to do synchronous because obviously you have a discussion, you have the ability to, you know, they, they look at me and video in live, uh, uh, live, you know, time and, and they can ask questions, uh, through their microphone or their discussion board. So, um, and they all said, yeah, we're fine. So, so I'm teaching actually synchronously every Tuesdays and Thursdays afternoon. I'm teaching the two classes and could, the attendance is actually same. Yeah. I was going to say you could, if you have it at the time that the class hour was, then they would have, that, that's the time, you know, that they have that time free because that that's the time that they were coming to class now. Yes. That's my thinking too. I mean, I, I you know, the administration's point is that, yeah, but the situation is now different. The circumstances being, might have led to their, yeah, 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 right. yeah, 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 yeah. So that's why I asked, but, but since all my students were fine, in fact, they preferred the uh, synchronous uh, teaching, then that's what we're doing. 
Yeah. It's working I, okay. I've had a sort of the debate with myself, and there's also been a debate in our university amongst the faculty about how good of a job we should be doing. Um, as silly as that sounds, um, whether we should try to make this as high quality an experience as possible or whether we should just sort of limp to the, limp to the end of the semester, which is only a month away, the, the worry being that if this goes too well, it's going to facilitate or an already rush towards online instruction and, right. and provide a very powerful argument for administrations to cut more right. <laughs> into faculty lines and stuff. And, and and we have entire departments that are all online now. Yeah. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they would like to make the whole university that way. Um, so do you, no, that wouldn't surprise me either. Do you have any feelings uh, about that? Yeah. We're sort of cooperating with, I mean, we, it has to be done, but does it need to be done so well? In other words. Um, right, 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 um, right. Well, so we haven't had actually that particular discussion inside our department, but um, my feeling on that, uh, at least not yet, my, my feeling on that is, you know, I'm trying to do my best given the uh, the tools that are available, but no, I'm not going uh, to make the extra stop uh, step of of making you know really professional looking videos and and, and things like that. Uh, I don't think that's my job, frankly. Yeah. For, for one thing, and it and it takes too much time uh, to do it. Um, I think my argument, should the administration push that way when things get back to normal, my argument is actually going to be that I've asked the students themselves and the students themselves say, no, in class, it's a whole different experience because sure, we can have a video, we have a conversations and all that sort of stuff, but it's not the same. You can't gauge the, the people in the same way. There's no immediate, you know, the interaction is delayed and, and it's like even in synchronous teaching, um, you don't get the feeling of that you have in the classroom. And yeah. I know that this all sounds very fuzzy and, you know, sort of, and, and warm in some sense, but it makes a difference. It does make a difference. You yeah. can gauge, first of all, I cannot actually look at the students. Right. So I don't, I can't gauge their responses because t- t- typically they tend to, uh, take, uh, you know, turn off their video, um, yeah. to save uh, bandwidth. Sure. And so I can't actually look at the students. They can look at me, but I can't look at the students. So that right there makes a difference. And even if you, when you look at video, you know, if I have 30 video, tiny little videos in front of me, uh, pictures of people, that's just not, not the same. So the students themselves are recognizing that. And I'm encouraging that to, to, to write that into the teaching evaluations at the end of the semester. Yeah. You know, we, we, I've noticed this, that with the younger faculty, you know, we've done hires pretty steadily over the last few years. And then more and more of them are using PowerPoints and other sorts of things that are pre-made in a sense. Um, right. um, whereas maybe this is just an age thing, but I almost entirely am imp- improvisational. Um, yeah. I don't walk in unprepared, but I don't walk in with a script. And right. very much how the whole thing goes depends on the reactions to the room. Yes, so I, exactly. I'm seeing, you know what I mean? And, and so... In and fact, so uh, I don't know how it's going to turn out by the end until I see the reactions sure. to what I'm saying, you know. Of course. In fact, I, I actually went the other way around um, until recently. I was preparing PowerPoint presentation, you know, keynote. I use Apple software, but still uh, presentations, you know, very structured and all that sort of stuff. And then I became more and more uh, so concerned about the fact that this was a little too canned and a little, you know, discouraging uh, sort of live con- live conversation. So now I actually walk into the classroom. I don't use slides at all. Yeah. Um, and I walk into the classroom just with my notes uh, as a reference uh, to what I want to say. And sure enough, what happens as a result is that there's a lot more conversation. 
the drawback of that, as far as the, sort of the administration is concerned, is that I literally cannot write a detailed syllabus because I don't know when we're going to cover a particular topic because it depends yeah. on how much time we're going to get, you know, we're going to use yeah. to, to actually get there. So I just tell the students, look, during the semester, this is what I intend to cover, but I'll, you know, I'll let you know week by week where, where we are and what and how to prepare for the next round. Yeah. And that's been far more enjoyable for both myself and the students. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we spend an entire, you know, we, I start, I say a few things, and then we spend the entire class just discussing, you know, the consequences or thoughts about that particular thing, and yeah. we never get to the end of the chapter. So what? Yeah. It's okay with me. Yeah, yeah. So what brings us here today um, is um, there are two is the subject of consciousness um, and two what have lately become sort of prominent positions on it. Um, one of which on one side is panpsychism, and the other on the on the other side is what we'll just call illusionism, which is sort of the the, this, the view associated with Daniel Dennett. Um, what occasions this is that. You, so I, I, I follow you on Twitter and you, um, got into a, a lengthy back and forth exchange with one of the more prominent panpsychists, um, Philip Goff. Um, yep. you use, what is that, what is that platform you use to do the letters back and forth? It's called letter.wiki. Letter.wiki. Okay. So th- that, which is, by the way, something that I really like the format and it's something I, I'm hoping to use myself. Um, you engage in a, a back and forth with Philip Goff. What did you do? Like three or four rounds? Three rounds each, uh, about a thousand words per round. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice format because, as you say, it allows a co- an actual conversation. It's delayed, so yeah. you don't respond immediately. Uh, you know, it, it's over a matter of weeks, actually, in our, yeah. in our case. Uh, and others can read. Others can read it then, yeah. and it looks like it's 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 nice. Um, yeah. So you got into a pretty su- substantial exchange with him, and then um, Keith Frankish, who's one of the prominent illusionists had a piece in um, IAI um, trying to sort of um, make the case for illusionism um, maybe in a way uh, aside from the way that Dennett has done it, although he does wind up employing many of Dennett's tropes. Now, I know that you're not a fan either of panpsychism or of illusionism. Right. (laughs) Um, And so I thought maybe we would talk, and I'm not inclined to be one either. Um, Um. I'm not sure what, what, how far we are apart on consciousness. Um, I have, but I have some thoughts about what I think the, where I think the problem actually lies and why I think they, it feels like everybody's just banging their heads on something. But I'd like to, um, first with you, what is the problem of consciousness that all of these, um, people are trying to solve? So how, how do you even understand the, the, the issue? Yeah, that is, that is a good question. So uh, I think that the problem that they're trying to solve is what David Chalmers famously articulated as the hard problem of consciousness. Um, sometimes it's also phrased as the problem of qualia. qualia. Mm-hmm. So the, the problem of first-person experiences, first-person sensation kind of thing. Um, so here's the problem according to Chalmers. Uh, he says, he argues, and he's not the only one, but he's the most prominent um, uh, of that group. Uh, he's basically arguing that, look, even if, and it is a big if, uh, uh, science, neurobiology, you know, uh, cognitive science, whatever science you want, you want, is going to eventually give us a complete 
third-person description of how consciousness arises inside, you know, in a biological organism using the wetware, the brain, and all that sort of stuff, um, that still doesn't um, make the, the, the bridge, that doesn't bridge the gap between a third-person description and a first-person experience. In other words, there will be, you know, even if you actually, you personally then read everything and understand everything that neuroscience eventually will be able to tell about consciousness, the moment you have a conscious, an actual conscious experience, you know, seeing a color, colorful rainbow or something like that, um, you will gain knowledge uh, that is actually not uh, anywhere to be found in the scientific des- des- description. Um, and therefore, the yellowness of the yellow. Yeah, the yellow is not the yellow, for yeah, instance. Yeah. Right. And um, and so the argument mean, means suggests that there is a kind of an irreducibility of first person experience to third person descriptions. That's pretty much my understanding of what the argument is. And the major two ways to go about it at this point uh, seem to be well, actually, I suppose there are three major ways to go about it. One is the one that Char- Chalmers himself goes, and that's dualism. Uh, you know, not not substance dualism, a la Descartes but sort of property dualism uh, of some sort, although he leaves it pretty vague. And that's, that's why, you know, he suggested the famous um, philosophical zombies argument, the notion that it is conceivable that, uh, you know, that you, for instance, could, could have all the, the behavior, the outside behavior, external behaviors and manifestations of a human being, but in fact, there is nothing in, going on inside, that, that you're identical to um, a living organism, the same exact structure of the brain, etc. but there is actually no first person experience going inside you're just showing the outside signs that would be you would be a philosophical zombie at that, at that point that's one answer such as it is um the second one is beginning popularity recently is this panpsychism thing which has a number of different variations uh you know versions of it but essentially is the notion that consciousness is actually is in some sense an elemental uh, property of nature and therefore, the notion is you solve the, the hard problem because there is no hard problem. If, if, if consciousness is everywhere, it's, you know, in, 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 uh, including fundamental particles, then there is no problem about how consciousness arises in, in things that have brains and stuff like that. And then the third solution is the classic Dennett, uh, the, the Netian one, which is, well, there is no consciousness. Consciousness is an illusion in a, in a sense. And therefore, the problem is dissolved in the other in the other way. So these are the, that's my understanding of the general intellectual landscape. So is it? Would you say that it's um, that this this I'm going to call it strange. This strange collection of positions <laughs> is the result of widespread belief in the failure of and the failure past and the unlikely to succeed future of the reductionist program. That's right. So, uh, yes. In fact, um, during the, my conversation with Gough, it turns out that uh, what he really objects to is reductionism. In fact, even broader, actually, I think he, he objects to physicalism. Um, yeah. He says, right, so, so it's, it's a metaphysical discussion at that, at that level, isn't it? Because I kept asking, I mean, maybe we'll, we'll get to this in, in, in a minute, but I kept asking him, so what, what kind of empirical evidence uh, does it bear on panpsychism or what kind of experiments or observations can you imagine uh, would actually lend support to the panpsychist position. And he very frankly said, none. There isn't going to be none because I'm assuming 
uh, a framework outside of physicalism, and therefore there is not going to be any empirical evidence. And that, that for me was a conversation stopper. It's like, okay, well then, then you can make up whatever you want, and you tell me, you know, there's never going to be any ev- any evidence in favor of this thing. Therefore, fine, you're just making up a story as you go. Yeah, I mean, here's the reason I'm asking, and that's because here's, the reason I'm asking is. If you took philosophy, if you studied philosophy of mind in the 70s and 80s, um, um, and even into the 90s, which which is what I did, um, you know, so I was in college in the 80s, took my first philosophy of mind class probably in 1987, and then I was in graduate school in the 90s. Um, you you would have learned primarily about materialist reductionism, right? Um, yeah. The various challenges to it from the standpoint of not just consciousness and qualia, but also um, intentionality. Okay. Right. Um, You would discuss the, learn the various merits of the various variations on physicalism, like functionalism, which seem to satisfy some of these problems and not others. Um, And so on and so forth. And and you would have learned probably that um, these remain outstanding problems but it wasn't the case then yet. I mean, there were some exceptions, but it wasn't yet the case then that people went for these very exotic, um, um, almost desperate. Uh, what, is it your perception that something has changed since the 90s that has caused people to become so much more desperate or impatient <laughs> or whatever that suddenly now they're, they're going to what I would take to be very extreme wildly right. counterintuitive the sorts of views that would be non-starters in a non-desperate situation right yeah that's an interesting observation if i had to guess uh, i would say that there is an increasing frustration with the fact that actually science contra contra protestations by Goff and chalmers and so on and so forth science is actually making progress in that in that area um and uh you know we, we these people often say, oh, science will never solve the problem of consciousness. Well, we don't know anything about consciousness from a scientific perspective. That's simply not true. Uh, if you're not, in order to claim that, you have to ignore it mounting evidence in, in uh, cognitive science and neuroscience. We actually begin to know quite a bit about consciousness and about, you know, um, how it is, in fact, the systemic uh, property of the brain, but also there are certain parts that are uh, primarily involved into it. Um, you know, we can alter conscious states of people experimentally. We can do all sorts of interesting stuff that tell you each, every single one of them, of course, um, uh, confirms the notion that consciousness is a result of a physical activity. In, in you brain. can alter someone's conscious by hitting them over the head. I mean, you know, yes, no kidding. <laughs> right. But we can now doing it far more, you know, uh, detailed fashion, you can actually implant electrodes or in fact even magnetic, we can uh, create highly localized magnetic fields inside specific areas of the brain and reproduce uh, the kind of qualia or the kind of sort of qualitative experience that that, that these people are so so worried with. Now, does that mean that we have uh, a complete understanding of consciousness from a scientific perspective? Hell no, not not even close. That, That truly is a hard problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard scientific problem. Um, and I don't even, I'm not even necessarily optimistic that we will ever get to a complete understanding or description, scientific description of consciousness, not because of any mystical reason or any, you know, metaphysical reason, but just because it's a really, really difficult problem, just like other problems that science has made very little advances over, let's say, the, the, the question of the origin of life, for instance. We have plenty of theories. But we don't know. 
we, we simply don't know because we don't have enough information about the original situation. You know, the, we don't have fossil records, so on and so forth. So I'm not, I'm not one of those who suggest that, oh, given enough time and money and science will solve everything. That seems, uh, uh, you know, uh, naively optimistic. But I don't see any reason in principle why we cannot arrive um, at a complete understanding of, of uh, consciousness. So I think, the, going back to your question, yes, I suspect that there may be some degree of uh, discomfort or even fear that philosophy of mind is going to be sort of edged out by the science in the way in which, you know, uh, psychology as a science has etched out, uh, you know, uh, psychology as a branch of, of natural philosophy, yeah. the way in which yeah. that happened with biology, physics, yeah. and so on and so forth. And I actually count that as progress in philosophy, right? Once that a, that a field becomes mature enough that the answer becomes, you know, more heavily empirical and therefore the field spins off from from philosophy and it becomes a science, I think that's welcome news. And, and now what, what you have, of course, is uh, the ability to do a philosophy of, in the way, in the way in which we do a philosophy of science or a philosophy of biology or et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So. That's really interesting. And actually, I, I, I wasn't expecting to go in this direction, but I'll, I will say this one thing about it, which is a sort of disanalogy. And that is, you know, philosophy of mind is unique in the other philosophies of in that it's yes. the only one that still purports to be first order, right? right. Um, exactly. um, um, philosophers of biology don't do biology, right? Correct. Philosophers of physics don't do physics, but philosophers of mind are still doing psychology, right? And there's no counterpart in, in philosophy of biology to something like no. panpsychism, right? No, that's right. right. And I think that's the problem, that uh, we are now that the philosophy of mind, I think, should evolve into eventually at some point into philosophy of cognitive science or, or philosophy of whatever discipline is going to be dealing, you know, empirical discipline is going to be dealing with this kind of thing. That was, I'm glad you mentioned first philosophy because um, uh, that was one of my objections to uh, Philip, who interestingly asked me, what do you mean by first philosophy? I thought this was a fairly uh, standard terminology. I mean, Descartes wrote a meditation on first philosophy. So yeah, Aristotle that thinks a... <laughs> about metaphysics as being yeah. first philosophy, right? I mean, but anyway, so I thought that was kind of standard. Uh, uh, Klein but... says there's no first philosophy. I mean, you know, right? right. So it's, it's, you know, I mean, we're talking about fairly big guys here. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I said, you know, what, you, what you're trying to do here is first philosophy, and I said I thought first philosophy is was essentially oh. dead with Descartes. You know, Descartes was the last great, and I think that you know Descartes gets a lot of uh, you know, slack, uh, uh, crap from people for all sorts of reasons. I, I think undeservedly. He was a great philosopher. I agree. His failure, his failure shows, however, that that approach had reached an end. That approach was started with the pre-Socratics. Right? I mean, it's it, uh, when, when Thales uh, of Miletus was saying, oh, everything is made of water, he was doing first philosophy. Didn't yeah. call it that. But he was doing first philosophy. Look, without, then, yes. without Descartes, you couldn't have had Hume, right? I mean, you, you had Correct. to, he had to, he showed the limit of it Exactly, but, but was still committed because he's from an earlier generation. Then Hume was able to go that extra. Exactly. Saying, oh, you you did something very important for us, but it's not what you thought, right? I mean, what you showed correct. was correct. And so I would think that first philosophy would have ended. Yeah, ended at that point. Imagine Quine had to remind us in the 1950s and 60s that yeah, we shouldn't be doing first philosophy, and apparently some people are still doing it, even yeah. even more than half a century after Quine. Yeah. So, um, here, so let's get into the, into the details of this a little bit. Um, um, 
first of all, with, with regard to um, the panpsychism side of this, um, one of my problems with it is, aside from the fact that it's first philosophy, aside from the fact that it's just flat out a priori metaphysics, um, because these, these people accept the idea that this is not an empirical thesis, despite the fact right. that it would seem to me that a statement like muons are conscious has to be an empirical statement. I, I'd certainly, I, I don't see how that can be an a priori statement um, um, in the modern framework, right? I mean, I could see right. how someone like Aristotle could say something like that and have it mean sure. something that's synthetic a priori, but I don't see how in the 20th century, the 21st century, that can be uh, taken as, you know, it's, it's not possible. And so, but my problem with it initially is I don't even see how it's a solution to the problem. So if the problem is supposed to be that there's a, there's um there's, there's a, an aspect of reality that's revealed in first person experience. That's not revealed in third person experience. Right. I don't see how saying that a muon has a piece, a little bit of consciousness in it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, it almost makes it like consciousness is like jam and there's like little parts of it. But if you put it all together, then you get a conscious person or a conscious raccoon. Yeah. Or a, I don't yeah. even understand how it's supposed to solve the problem. No, that's right. I mean, that, that is one of the most puzzling things about this, this thing. I actually asked Philip specifically. I said, well, so you're not saying that electrons or muons think. And he said, no, I'm not saying that. Okay, fine. I'm saying that they have some elemental version of, you know, of conscious. Okay, I don't know what that means, but but even granting, even if I'm going to grant you that that um, statement, you still have the problem of explaining to me why is it, or why why is it that rocks who are made, you know, mountains who are made of many more moons and and electrons and stuff like that than I am, they don't seem to think or, you know, have first-person experiences, and I do. So, so you still have the same problem. You can't even say, you know, once enough matter gets together, it starts thinking, because as I said, otherwise you have to say that mountains and planets are thinking, and, and you don't have an explanation at all. Um, so if you're saying, well, that is because not only of the amount of matter, but the way in which it is put together and interacts with, with itself, then you're essentially back to the scientific paradigm. What do you think scientists are trying to do? I mean, nobody's arguing that that consciousness is a magic uh, uh, property of some sort. That it's right. that all it's, you're doing then is trying to show us the, what the building blocks of consciousness are, and yeah. presumably there'll be an evolutionary story. There'll be rudimentary forms, right? So on and so forth. But if it if it but the way they describe it, it's almost like well, like it's almost like ancient atomism, like like you know, like a yeah. like like a piece of pizza is made out of tiny triangles, right? I mean, it's yeah. almost <laughs> like that. It's almost like that, right? I mean, that's what the old that's what the old yeah. and sort of atoms were, right? I mean, there was like rectangles right. were made of little rectangles. I mean, it, it, it's it it beggars belief, and if that's not what it is then I don't see how it's any different from just what, what scientists do, which is to try to, to provide both exactly. a, gene, a, a genealogical account as well as a kind of atomistic slash reductive account, right? Um, right. Um, um, and then now, what do I what, need you for, right? I mean, it's Yes, like, <laughs> exactly. What, what, what are you telling me exactly that it's, that it's new? Now, I, I pushed also, Philip, in a different direction. So there is a physicist who I respect a lot, theoretical physicist, Sabine Ossenfelder, 
who actually wrote a really nice blog post uh, on, on panpsychism and basically gave a, a rundown of the reasons why, from a physicist's perspective, there is no such a thing as consciousness as elemental property. And she went through, you know, some of the, 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 the properties we actually know fundamental matter has. And she said, look, if it turns out that we miss a property of some sort, uh, then this would have empirical consequences. Then, then this would mean that our models of reality are significantly incomplete. And this would have to have empirical consequences. And she works out the details of this. Okay, so I presented that to Philip, and, she, and he said, oh, no, no, no. But see, here's the thing. She completely misunderstands panpsychism because panpsychism is actually not about physical properties as we understand them. In other words, as they can be studied by physics. And I said, well, if it's not about physical properties as they can be understood by physics, what is it about exactly? Because then you're falling, you risk falling in dualism. dualism. Yeah. yeah, it's another kind of dualism. And I, it, it's like, I don't think he had a particularly, you know, articulate answer to that, to that question. You can't have it both ways, right? You can't see, say, oh, it's an elemental property of matter. But it's not material. Okay, well, if, but it's not but material. material. But it's just like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> right. And I but actually pushed him on this in the Twitter. I did. I wasn't in the in the letters exchange, but I, I did argue with him for a while on Twitter. And eventually, I just got frustrated because I thought he was either either just being unresponsive or obtuse. Um, but I sort of asked him. I said, "Look, if it's not if it's not if these are elementary properties of material things, but they're not. It's not material." then why don't you have all the same interaction problems that any property dualist has? Right. I mean, and, right. you know, and I, and I even pointed out to him, I said, look, you know, my old, my old uh, mentor uh, and teacher, Jerry Katz um, wrote a whole book um, alleging that there are such things as he calls composite objects, objects that have both concrete and abstract components. Um, um, for example, he would say the equator is a composite object because it's both a location on the earth, but it's also a geometric circle, whatever you might think of that. But Katz at least understood that he owed some account of yeah. how it could be that, that abstract and material properties could interact in this way. And he wrote right. a whole book trying to, out, trying to outline what that account would have to look like. Um, and I, I actually wrote a, wrote a paper, I published a paper on it back in the day saying why I didn't think this would work. But, but the panpsychists don't even think that they owe any such account, right? Um, no, that's um, right. And the interesting thing. It seems very stipulative. Thing. It just, it seems like a very stipulative. Yes. It's highly stipulative, but one of the, the frustrating things is that, that Goff's book is actually has a subtitle along the lines of, you know, toward a new science. Well, no. <laughs> if you're telling me that you're supposed, that your alleged new science does not actually make any contact whatsoever with the empirical, and this is not, by the way, <clears throat> there are situations in science it's not driven by highly, mathematics. It's not driven by right. mathematics. It's right. not driven by mathematics, right? Yeah. But also, there are situations in science where uh, a, a theory does not currently make content empirical. The most obvious example is, is string theory, right? And sure enough, it's controversial. Uh, you know, the, the same above-mentioned Sabine Ossenfelder has been in, in the, the fray with other physicists because she's arguing that essentially, for all effective purposes, string theory is mathematically informed metaphysics and not and uh, not actual science. But at least with string theory, there is no objection in principle 
to the notion of empirical evidence. It's just that the energy levels that would be necessary in a, in a particle accelerator to create situations that are uh, amenable to testing string theory are so damn high that they are for all effective you know, for all effective uh, uh, purposes, impossible to achieve, not only now, but probably in the, in the very distant future. But that's not an in-principle objection. It's a, it's a practical objection. The panpsychists, on the other hand, there is, are saying that in principle, there is no connection with the, the empirical world. And if that's the case, then we're not, we're definitely not talking science. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to attribute sort of, you know, be conspiratorial or anything or, or attribute. <laughs> no, well, I guess what I'm wondering is because we've talked about this on a number of occasions. It's come up. Do you think that in general, we've become kind of loose and slovenly about science in the sense of what it is? In other words, do you think that there's some part of the reason that this is gaining tra- traction now is because physicists themselves, at least some of them, have started playing games with the question of empir- empirical, empirical confirmation and yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that's why people like Austin Felder and my friend Jim Baggett, for instance, in the UK, who has also been in a number of things, he's a physicist, uh, been in a number of things about this issue. That's why they're pushing back against notions like string theory, the multiverse, and things like that. Um, and up precisely on the ground, it's just not good science. They may or may not be true, but yeah. it's not good science. Right. right. Because if there is no way in, you know, in, 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 uh, even in the distant future, in the case of string theory, and even in, and in principle, in the case of even worse, in the case of the, of the multiverse, then what are we talking about? Uh, we're really, we're really, in a sense, going back to first philosophy. Yeah, we're doing metaphysics, which yeah. is kind of ironic because these are the same scientists who usually, you know, poo-poo the philosophy part <laughs> and said, "Oh, that's absolutely not what I'm doing." Yeah. Uh, as it turns out, you are. And yes, the problem that people are concerned with, some scientists are concerned with, is precisely that you're undermining the integrity of science by doing that. Um, and, yeah, and, I, and you're, you know, is this an active fight in the physics community? I mean, I guess yes. is there are there scientists? Let, let's call them conservatives, okay? Who are saying yeah. saying no 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 we cannot have radicalism in science like it, 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 yeah. in this way right I mean it's going to undermine not just its credibility but it's going to in a sense change the landscape it's going to allow for people yeah. to go in directions that that are all going to wind up being dead ends right they're going or, or just spinning fancy yarns so to speak. Um, 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 there's actually a fight going on? Yes, there is. In fact, um, I was at a conference in Munich uh, a few years ago uh, on string theory. And when I was invited, I replied to the organizer and I said, you got the wrong guy. I am not a philosopher of physics or a physicist. And, and the guy said, well, no, we, we know exactly who you are. <laughs> and what we'd like to, 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 to do is you, you, we know you're interested in the demarcation problem. So the, between science and pseudoscience and stuff like that. And you've written uh, about Popper, who studied out this whole thing. And I said, well, okay, but what does that have to do with string theory? And the response was, well, the problem is that it seems to me that there's a bunch of physicists who are throwing Popper at each other without actually having read anything more than a Wikipedia article on, on Popper. Yeah. Uh, and so they're saying, you know, this is falsifiable, this is not falsifiable. So would you mind coming in and sort of giving an opening lecture to just give us the, the Popper 101 and then maybe even bring us up to speed uh, on what philosophy of science 
in general is right now because, you know, Popper is several decades old. Yeah. And so I, I accepted. And this was great. That's when I met Sabine and, and other people. There were a couple of Nobel Prizes there. Um, and it was a great conference because I saw people really arguing for the entire three days on the nature of science. They were not actually arguing about physics. They were actually on, they were arguing about the nature of science. And the most recent book by Ossenfeld that just came out last year, this year there's a book by Sean Carroll on the other side of the divide who really pushes hard for the multiverse interpretation, um, multiverse theory. So, yeah, it's very much going on. There have been front-page editorials, you know, full-page editorials in Nature magazine about, you know, let's take back the soul of physics. So, yeah, it's very much going on. And I think that people like Goff are um, latching onto this thing, uh, whether consciously or not, I, I have no idea, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're sensing that there is turmoil in science and then there is an opening for redoing, for, for reinterpreting what science is. I mean, to be fair, uh, Philip is not the first one, right? A few years ago, it was Thomas Nagel uh, who wrote that book about the cosmos and stuff yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. Which, which got really seriously criticized both by scientists and by philosophers of science, particularly, um, uh, you know, Elliot Sober, for instance, who wrote a really interesting review of that book. And that was the same general idea. I mean, after all, Nagel is the one that, that started out this whole thing about third-person uh, experience with his famous classic paper on what is it like to be a bat. Yeah, he also right. wrote one of the early papers on panpsychism. Um, um, yes, exactly. Um, um, and uh, also on brain bisection and all sorts of interesting things that um, um, do, do, this is the last thing on this. Uh, do, do, is there a generational aspect to this? Does it tend to be the older one? The older scientists tend to be more hard-nosed and conservative and, and, and it's the younger ones who are going off on these wild um, or do you mm. not, or is it not general? No, that's not my impression. Um, in fact, is anything up the other way around? Uh, uh, there really? are some new, yeah, there are some new physicists who are sick and tired of string theory because mm. it's been around since the eighties and it hasn't led anywhere. Uh, and so they're kind of saying, Hey, it's time to look somewhere else. It's time to do something else because there's this, this seems to be a dead, a dead end. Now, however, I want to, Ask you, we bring up a, a particular subtopic which you mentioned a minute ago, and they're kind yeah. of, um, and I want to, I would like to hear your opinion about this. So, when I pushed uh, Philip Goff about the empirical evidence stuff, right, and the, and the and the, the the fact that if you deny that there is any empirical evidence, then you're doing first philosophy, so you're just sitting down and and and, and assuming that by thinking about the world, you actually can discover things about the world, right? Um, his response was, well. Just, just the very asking of empirical evidence assumes a physicalism, physicalist view, you know, physicalist metaphysics, and we all know that physicalism is in trouble. Therefore, it's like, hold on a second. First of all, no, we don't all know that physicalism is in trouble, etc. It's that I think that's a little too fast. But let's not have a discussion about physicalism. I grant you that physicalism is, of course, a metaphysical position. I might even grant you that physicalism is the um, unstated assumption that most of us certainly in day-to-day -day life and scientists kind of take on board and say, okay, if the world is made of matter, here's how I'm going to act in the, in the world. Fine. Um, now, if it is a metaphysical position, then it's no, no better or worse than any other metaphysical position in terms of, you know, you can make, you can come up with arguments pro and con, but you certainly cannot come up with empirical evidence. Empirically, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be not, they're going to be neutral empirically. They're, Correct. The and they have is going to have and be in terms of arguments and internal coherence and things like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So now there's a difference, however, here 
in terms of pragmatism, of usefulness. So if I assume, let's say, let's, let's contrast just to, to, to get my, my point across, uh, hopefully a little bit better. Let's, let's contrast two metaphysical views of how the world works. One is standard physicalist. The world is made of matter where by matter, by the way, I mean, whatever the physicists think it's at the bottom of stuff. Okay. Of things, yeah. whether it is muons, strings, fields, whatever the hell it is, right. whatever they say. Okay. That's what I mean by physicalism or materialism. I don't mean matter as in, you know, this is a, yeah. a yeah. solid thing. Um, so that's what I mean by physicalism. Let's contrast it with, let's say, a, something like uh, a, a simulation hypothesis, where in fact the universe is in, it's a it's a it's a computer simulation, and there are some there's somebody who's actually set the parameters in place. There's nothing physical; it's all informational. We're, we're literally inside, like a video game kind of stuff, right? Great. Now, nobody the, the empirical evidence is compatible with both metaphysical positions equally there is no by definition of a metaphysical yeah. position the, yeah. um, and however it turns out that if i build science and everyday activity on the assumption that actually things are made of matter i operate pretty pretty damn well um, i don't see anything particularly practical coming out or practically different coming out of the assumption that we live in a simulation if I actually am convinced, if I say, okay, let me restructure science, right, uh, on the basis not of physicalism but of the simulation hypothesis, what would that look like? It would look to me exactly the same. You would still do, you still look that. for evidence, yeah, I agree right? With that. Yeah. You would still, it would still make sense to ask for epistemic warrant of, of your statements, and that epistemic warrant is guaranteed only by a combination of good arguments and, and evidence and empirical evidence. Of course, empirical, if you will actually live in a simulation, wouldn't mean the same thing that it means within a physicalist framework. Yeah. But for all effective purposes, you can't tell the two apart. So I'm going to reject Goff's suggestion that just by merely asking for evidence, I'm biasing things in terms in, 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 in the direction of physicalism. I don't think so. Well, and, and it's a very odd... Um given the history of the, the history of 20th century philosophy, it's a very odd position to take given that by far the most hard nosed scientifically minded um, verificationists yeah. were, all phenomen were all phenomenalists. Right? <laughs> the logical right. positivists were phenomenalists. That's People right. forget this, That's right. right? That's right. But That's they right. actually didn't think because they were such hard nosed empiricists, they, they would not be make any judgments beyond experience. Right. And That's so, right. Carnap wrote a whole book, The Logical Construction of the World, right? Yep. So, I mean, and, this, and these people were members of the Vienna Circle. There was a bunch of physicists amongst them. So it can't be the case that to be empirically minded presupposes materialism because, oh. as a matter yeah. of fact, the most empirically minded people in the 20th century were not physicalists. They were phenomenalists. Um, exactly. Now he might say, well, they were all holding a view that you can't hold, but I, I don't see why. And like, like you said, I mean, look, this was, it was very rhetorically effective, but this was, of course, the stupidity of Samuel Johnson's response to Barclay, right? Kicking right. a stone. That doesn't prove anything, right? No, that's right. It doesn't. Exactly. Well, that's, that, I'm glad you bring that one up. So that's another, that's, that's another contrast, right? A physicalist uh, view versus an idealist view. Yeah. Well, sure. 
But if idealism means that the world is still going to look ex- and behave, more importantly, exactly as a physicalist will tell you, then what are we talking about? Right. Uh, we, can, we can kick the stone and it makes no difference and, uh, in terms of your metaphysical position. And that should tell you that, therefore, the empirical evidence isn't, you know, asking for empirical evidence isn't biasing you toward a particular metaphysical view. That's right. Um, and now, the, the, the problem that I have with metaphysical views in general, if I, as much as it is fun to talk about physicalism and, and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, idealism and all sorts of isms that you want, the problem is this. Because, precisely because the empirical evidence cannot discriminate among these views, right? That what you have there, there is a bunch of logically coherent scenarios, right? More or less logically coherent, because there are certain metaphysical positions that actually might not even be logically coherent. That's but right. let's, let's take the best ones, the ones that actually are logically coherent, right? Well, the problem with that is the general problem of the mapping between logic and the world. There is, as far as we know, say for Shankar's multiverse, as far as we know, there is one physical world. That is what science is interested in. That's what we are tend to be mostly interested in. Yeah. In terms of logical worlds, there is an infinite number of them. That's right. Right. Because the only res- criteria there to restrict uh, your logical analysis of the world is internal coherence. That's right. But there is an infinite number of internally coherent logical possibilities, just like there is an infinite number of internally coherent mathematical structures. That's right. Right? That's why, that's my understanding, for instance, of why mathematics works so well and surprisingly well to describe aspects of the natural world, right? Uh, and yet the overwhelming majority of mathematics doesn't seem to have anything to do with the natural world. Why is that? Well, because if mathematics represents all conceivable right, logically coherent, mathematically internally coherent structures, and the, the physical world is one such structure, it's an implementation of such one structure. Right. But most are not, which is exactly, exactly what you would expect and is exactly what winds up being the case, right? Correct. Um, and I think the that metaphysics, that, yeah. as a, sorry, metaphysics as a, as a sort of a prime first philosophy is in the same boat there. That there's probably going to be, I don't know about an infinite, but certainly a very large number of internally coherent metaphysical scenarios. But because they don't make, they're all equal in terms of, or equivalent in terms of the empirical structure of the world, then frankly, I'm not that interested. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can, there's a, what are you going to do with that? difference though, don't you think? I mean, look between, and this is, this is getting us way off, but it's interesting. Um, between, on the one hand, logic and mathematics, and on the other hand, metaphysics, right? And so um, the fact, though, is that despite the fact that the overwhelming majority of mathematical systems have no relevance to the actual world at all, the fact that some do is what you'd expect given the nature of mathematical systems and the fact that there's one, you know, one world. Um, right. But nonetheless, the mathematical and logical systems are useful instruments, right, for the empirical understanding. In other words, they do have a practical utility, right, yeah. in, yes. in science. Right? Yes. Metaphysics, it seems to me, only has a practical utility within the manifest image, right? In other words, in other words right. what metaphysics does is provide intelligible narratives yes. to, to us as people, right? Yes. about 
the material. In other words, science does not really provide us with any sort of intelligible narrative, which, which is why we always interpret it in terms right. of the concepts and ideas of the manifesto. But it seems to me that to the extent to which metaphysics has a value, it operates entirely within the manifest image. Whereas it yes. seems that mathematics and logic have a direct relevance, practical relevance to the scientific image. I, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, we should remind our listeners that there actually are now two modes, two, two views about how to do metaphysics. One is the one that we've been talking about so far. Uh, you know, let's call it first philosophy type of metaphysics, yeah. right? Um, this is the approach that uh, of people that think that you can just sit down, think about stuff like mathematicians do or logicians do and come up with new discoveries about the world, new right. statements about, about the world, right? That, as I think I made perfectly clear so far, I think it's dead in the water. And it has been dead since the card. So it's time to sort of bury it, give it a nice funeral, yeah. acknowledge all of the stuff that it has done up to the card and then move on. But there is a second approach, which is right, right now, my understanding is it's a minoritarian approach within the field. That's the, what's sometimes referred to as scientific metaphysics. Uh, and this is the stuff that people like James Lanniman and Don Ross and, and, and collaborators have been doing for a, for a while. The, arguably one of the best books about that. There's a collection actually called Scientific Metaphysics, edited by Letterman and Ross. But arguably the best implementation of it that I know uh, of so far has been a, a book called Everything Must Go. Um, everything meaning two words, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that it's about the it's about what kind of metaphysical picture comes out of the natural sciences and particularly by from fundamental physics. And what Letterman and Ross and collaborators are saying is that the project of metaphysics should be not to discover new things because we got science for that, um, but to step back from science and just sort of put together a, a, a coherent overall picture that comes out of the individual specialized pictures of the uh, special sciences, including yeah. physics, but not only you know, yeah. biology, etc. Bridge, bridging the gaps, for instance, reinterpreting bridging gaps between sciences and so on and so forth, uh, which I think you're right. It squarely belongs to the manifest image. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not something that is helping the scientists doing doing anything. Yeah, yeah. And I, look, I mean, that's why I still do have interest in metaphysics in the sense of I'm still interested in, you know, realism, anti-realism debates and all that sort of stuff. Because sure. I do, uh, as you know, from our discussions on the subject, I don't view the manifest image as dispensable or no, um, as insignificant. Uh, indeed, I think it's, I think it's uh, the ultimate, it's the end game, it seems to me, um, because we are people. Um, and, I agree. And this is your, your, your constant refrain that science is a human activity. Um, right. um, and um, 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 so I, 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 entirely, I entirely concur with that. Um, let's switch over to the, um, um, let's talk about the illusionism a little bit. Um, oh, sure. Um, the other side of the debate. Yeah, because because it's here that I start to think I do have a suspicion of what the problem is and why we're not able to solve it. Um, um, I have a suspicion about it that the that that the illusionism really makes makes clear. Um, um, so at least the the Frankish view of the illusionism is that, um, and whether it's identical to Dennett's or whether it just borrows heavily from it, I don't really care. Um, but what Frankish essentially says is that, look, um, the problem of consciousness is the problem of thinking that consciousness is a problem because there's a special quality property um, 
um, called quality, qualia or quality, right? Right. Um, but there's really no so, so illusionism is not that there's no consciousness. Illusionism right. is the view that consciousness is not of a certain kind of property, right? Of a certain kind mm-hmm. of thing, i.e., qualia. Um, yes. And it's only if you think of consciousness as the experience of a special kind of thing that it creates a problem because qualia are weird kinds of things, right? Um, yes. um, but once you realize that, no, there's just brain processes that from what I gathered from Frankish, he's kind of a, an in-between a physicalist and a functionalist, right? I mean, there, there are mm-hmm. certain things that right. I think he thinks can be reduced all the way down to sort of the biochemical properties. And then there's other things that are only going to be reducible to the architectural properties, right? Uh, of, of yes. A, right. That's the sense I get from the article is that he's kind of a mixed, a mixed guy there. Um, and, um, and so the, the illusionism comes in only with regard to the thinking that there's a special property. It's not that we aren't conscious of things. It's that we're conscious of things. We're not conscious of mental qualities, right? And yeah. once you realize that, the problem sort of dissolves. Now, I yeah. don't think that the problem dissolves, but I do think that this illustrates that maybe the problem isn't what people – in other words, I think that he's right to focus on the problem-making aspects of qualia <laughs> – yeah, um, but I don't. But ultimately, I think that there remains a problem once 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 you sort of get rid of the qualia. There still remains a problem, and then maybe it's clearer what the problem is. How do you just feel in general about this thing about illusionism, so, not rejecting consciousness, but rejecting the idea that consciousness is of a special kind of mental object? So that's that's an interesting way to put it. And actually, I'm going to ask you a question in a second to just yeah. clarify my own my own thinking and. and, and the discussion, but when you say that <clears throat> illusionists don't think that consciousness is an illusion, well, then it certainly has been on record as saying that the consciousness is an illusion, but then he qualifies it in certain ways, and so I think that your reconstruction of what their position is, I think it's correct. Um, I think sometimes these people are a little either sloppy with their uh, with their language, uh, which is kind of surprising from Dennett, uh, for people like Dennett, or uh, provocative, which is actually more in line with Dennett as I know him. Uh, you know, so because, you know, if you go out and say, Hey, consciousness is an illusion, people are going to say, Whoa, what do you mean by that? And then they're going to start right. paying attention. But I do think that what they mean is something closer to what you were saying. But then the question becomes, so what, one way I've heard the illusionist position presented is it's not like, it's not that people don't have first person experiences. It's that qualia don't exist. But right. from the outside, it often looks like qualia is simply a technical term for first-person experience. So unless we draw uh, some kind of intelligible d- d- distinction there, I, uh, I'm not sure what we're saying yeah. so, or what they are saying, yeah. I, I suppose. Yeah, and I think, I think that this also, you know, there, were, I, there was some time ago I, I, I was, I was got in the habit of telling people to stop ever using the word subjective and objective um, mm. um, because they, they, they misuse it. I think that, that part of what the problem that happened was that subjectives and objectives started being used not just to describe epistemic positions but to actually describe things, right? So qualia were now called subjective properties, right? Um, right. 
in the metaphysical sense, right? Not in the sense that they're only properties you know of from a certain perspective, but they're somehow inherently subjective, right? Um, and yes. thus they're mental, right? They're, yes. Right. This goes all the way back to, to, to Locke and to this whole primary secondary quality distinction, right? Right. Um, right. Um, and so what Goff is trying to say is that the appearance of a hard problem arises because we take conscious experience to be experience of distinctly subjective mental properties. And how could there be such things in a physical right. universe, right? Right. Of course. Right. And, and so, so I don't even know if I think historically he's necessarily wrong about, about where the hard problem comes from. But if mm-hmm. you remember the way that you are described Chalmers characterization of the hard problem, it arises entirely out of the perspectival shift. It does not arise yes. because of some inherent property of the object of consciousness, right? Absolutely. It arises because of the perspective of consciousness, right? Right. Um, um, in other words, how do we make sense of first-person perspectives in the language of a third-person science is what I always understood the problem to be in my, myself. Yeah. It was the only yeah. problem that made sense to me. I never understood the... So that's why I suggested... Right. No, I think you're right. That's why I suggested in, in, in the past that actually the way Chalmers and I think also Goff at this point puts the problem is it's a category mistake. Um, because what they're trying to do, sometimes at least it sounds like, what they're trying to do is they're trying to blame science for doing its job right, <laughs> in a sense. I mean, we all know the dis- distinctions between, you know, knowledge of and knowledge that and things like that in, in, in epistemology, that's not a controversial distinction. So it shouldn't be controversial to say that what science is in the business of doing is to, to uh, prom- come up with a mechanistic story, empirically based, you know, experimentally based mechanistic story about what makes possible, how is it possible that you see red, Okay. And that story will look something like this. Look, there are certain cells that are receptive. You know, they're capable because of their pigments to, you know, uh, receive information from the environment. They translate that information in the optical nerve. The optical nerve interprets that information, et cetera, et cetera. And you see red. But none of that, of course, has anything to do with your first-person experience. Uh, hey, I'm seeing red. Right. But that's not because there is anything missing from the scientific story. Right. It's just a completely different kind of question. So it does remind me, of, of the, the classic uh, example of a category mistake, which is the, you know, the person who is told that, uh, you know, is brought around Oxford University and shown the building, the faculty, the student, the administration. Where's the university? So and then where's the university? It's like, well, what do you mean? I, I showed you that that's, that's all in terms of empirical stuff. That is it. Now, if yeah. you're talking about the university as a concept, Right. then I can't show you the concept. This right. is something completely different. Right. The university so. is not an additional object. Um, right. Um, and I do think that the consciousness problem does partly involve a mistaken kind of hypostatization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. um, 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 but but I'm, I'm wondering whether it's even more than, more than, that, than that in the sense that, look, here's what Goff, so I, I, I went through the Goff piece and I copied and pasted the relevant parts. Um, yeah. And... As I said to you, as I characterized him before when I described to you, I said, I said, look, Goff doesn't deny that there's consciousness. What he wants to deny is that consciousness is of some special mental quality, i.e. qualia, quality, uh, right. or properties, or whatever you want to call them. Um, and he wants to say, no, 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 consciousness is just ordinary 
experience, right? And we have a physical slash functional account of how ordinary experience works, right? Um, no. um, and he gives these sort of, he, he, so, so here's, a, here's just a line, okay? Um, when we look at a ripe banana, complex representational and reactive processes occur in our brains, our introspective systems monitor these processes, but misrepresent them as a simple quality, the pure fear, feel of yellowness, right? So the idea is that, look, um, we have all these conscious, we have all these experiences of things, right? That involves a sort of a direction of attention. So I have an experience of the, of the, of the bag over there. I have an experience of my coffee cup over here. These are all, I've directed my attention to different things and I've get, I get um, uh, various experiences. However, I can also turn my attention to my experiences, right? No. Um, and the way that that's presented though is simplified, right? I, I'm not, I'm, I, I don't perceive all the intricate procedures, what I what I perceive is a sort of a sort of a simplification, yellowness, right? right. Or or right. now, this is all very nice, but notice something, and I, I pay very close attention to language. Notice this part of the statement: our introspective systems monitor these processes, but misrepresent them. Right. Okay. Systems don't monitor anything. People monitor things. Okay. Correct. Now that's right. Right. So. That's so right. What, what all of this is a gigantic exercise in begging the question, right? Um, yes, if the problem is, as Chalmers originally, your characterization of Chalmers, which I think is actually a really good characterization, the problem then really, you realize that the problem is not a problem about qualia or about experience. It's really a problem about persons and personhood, right? Yes. Um, um, and so what yes. I'm wondering is, are we really going to wind up having two accounts that are entirely in separate domains? And, and the mistake is in thinking that we're going to have a unified account. We're going to have a very sophisticated scientific account right. of what the brain processes are yeah. that are involved in consciousness. However, we are always going to remain, still have the problem of perspective, right? Yes. But that's not a scientific problem. That's a problem about how... In other words, that's a problem that's over in the manifest image, right? Correct. Um, it's a problem how we talk about solvable. Right. And that way it's like the realism anti realism argument, right? Yeah, 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 I yeah, don't yeah, think yeah. it ultimately is going to have any efficacy in the scientific yeah, yeah. side, but it'll have an enormous significance in the narrative that we tell, right? Yeah. That, yeah that's I like what that. I'm starting like to that suspect one. the problem is mm-hmm. and why yes, people I like that feel like one. they're banging on it right um, I, I like that way to put it yes that's right the the the, the hard problem of consciousness or whatever it is i think it's uh, it's squarely in the in the manifest image and so it's a question of language it's a question of how we talk about stuff it may have uh sort of a high level scientific input from there like from, you know the field the rather than field there is psychology not neurobiology yeah not neuroscience or not chemistry or anything yeah. like that it's because psychology is a field that it's bridging in my mind at yeah. least bridges it's got to be at a higher level of description than those really correct old, correct um, and psychology because i say psychology because psychology of course is in a sense a science i mean it is informed by empirical evidence but it's also about very much about the manifest image um and therefore the language of it is much more um, approachable much more usable in terms of the manifest image but there's another thing that i wanted to point out your attention to when in the very passage you just read the word mischaracterization, right? So if, can you reread that, that, that bit? Yeah, yeah. When we look at a ripe banana, complex representational and reactive processes occur in our brains. 
Our introspective systems monitor these processes, but misrepresent them as a simple right. quality, the pure feel of yellowness. Yeah, right. So there, ironically, I think, Goff has something in common with the illusionists because, uh, you know, the famous illusionist uh, uh, metaphor proposed by Dennett is that, you know, the way in which we, you know, our mental processes work like the icons on a computer, right, on a desktop computer. And so that there is really no file, uh, you know, on your computer in the sense that you think of a physical object. It's just a representation. It's an icon. It's a representation of a process. Yeah. Um, right. Now, here's here's when in the in the article that I wrote, the rebuttal, the rebuttal article that I wrote about illusionism, I say, yeah, sure, fine. I like that analogy. But these are not misrepresentations. These are useful representations. Okay, so what's going on here? Let me give you an analogy. So, uh, you know, one of my hobbies is to keep track of space exploration stuff because when I was a kid, I wanted to become an astronomer. And so now one of the things that you get uh, that you understand pretty pretty uh, uh, quickly is that when you see uh, photos that are uh, from uh, you know d- deep space, so, so we send a probe to Jupiter, let's say, or to... Uh, Neptune, and you see the you know the beautiful pictures in color and all that sort of stuff. There is no photo. These are not photos. Okay, this is a computer that scans the environment in with in a incredibly complex array of instruments. And what we look at on the other side of the terminal as a photo is actually a representation, a simplified representation of a bunch of information that that computer has gathered. Uh, by using a lot, lot of tools. But it's not a misleading or mischaracterizing anything. It's just a representation that, that translates a lot of technical detailed information that the human brain would not be able to process into something that the human brain can process. In a sense, it's kind of NASA's equivalent of bridging the divide between the scientific and the, and the, yeah. and the manifest image, right? The NASA technicians and scientists have to be looking at something just because simply because human beings look at stuff. We understand the world by looking at stuff. That's right. If, yeah. you, if you feed me the raw feed from the computer, it's gibberish. Yeah. Okay. Now, very similarly, I think, this is exactly what the human brain does with the environment. Okay, so our our brains are actually processing a huge amount of information that comes from literally millions of cells. Okay, individual cells in your eyes, in your ears, in your you know throughout your body, you know, all of this stuff that creates sensations and and, and gets input from the from the outside. It's millions, billions of, of, of things that are processed inside a brain that is made of literally trillions of connections. Okay, now if you had actually access to the machine code, so to speak, right? You wouldn't understand a damn thing yeah. of what's going on. Just like if I instead, you know, I'm, I'm using a tablet now to talk talk to you. If I actually, instead of seeing you on the screen and this nice little icon that says, you know, mute, stop video and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. If I actually had needed access to the machine code to mute myself or to stop the video or something like that, we would, first of all, I wouldn't be able to do it. And second of all, it will take me days to process this kind of stuff, right? Instead, there's this nice little convenient thing that says, mute, I, cl- I click it and all, everything goes, goes on. Is that misleading? No, it isn't. It's misleading only if you f- begin to think of the, of the file icon or the mute icon as actual objects. That is misleading. That's Absolutely. right. Absolutely. And that's, I think, what you were saying earlier. That's profoundly misleading because they're not objects. They are high-level representations, understandable to the human mind, yeah. of complex 
underlying processes. Yeah. That I think is precisely what consciousness is and what first person experiences are. They are high level representations that are useful for us to navigate the world of fairly com- very complicated underlying processes and information. That's it. But there's nothing misleading about it. It's actually useful. This is the result of evolution. That's why I mentioned to, to Philip that I would, uh, I would uh, expect any kind of serious advancement in, in our understanding of consciousness to, to come out from a combination of neuroscience and evolutionary biology. Why evolutionary biology? Because we forget that these, this stuff evolved. Yeah, we forget that that sensorial systems and ways to analyze and represent sensorial systems, in other words, brains, um, are very different in the biological yeah. world. Different animals doing in different, radically different ways. I mean, I cannot imagine what what it is like to be an octopus. Not because it's it's you know somehow mystical or anything like that, but because octopi have a different kind of brain, especially have different kinds of sensorial organs. Yeah, that's what or bat. If you want to go back to Nagel's analogy, yeah. right? Yeah. The reason we cannot understand what it is like to be a bat is simply because the bat has a brain system that creates different kinds of icons, if you will, to the bat. Because the bat uh, sensorial system works differently from the human brain. If you just implanted, you know, the 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 the, uh, the bat system into a human brain, you get gibberish. Yeah. In the same way, in which if I all of a sudden start using the exact same code that is on my iPad on something that is actually not an iOS-based system. I don't get anything. Yeah. The, yeah. the, the whole thing disappears. So so one of the things that I objected about this, uh, to, the, to the illusionist perspective, is this, under, this, this notion that, you know, we don't have access to our mental uh, uh, processes. We have only access to misleading representations. Yeah. That's right. We don't have access to our inner processes, and we don't want access to the inner yeah. processes. That would be overwhelming. You would yeah. do nothing yeah. with those with that access. But the icons that we use are the result of evolution. They're fine tuned for helping us navigate the world. So they're not misleading. They're yeah, just the misleading. Is, that's the thing. Is that, look, I mean, even Frankish, and I don't know if Dennis talks, but Frankish does say that this illusion or misrepresentation is functionally useful, right? I mean, right. Um, for exactly the reason that you say. Um, um, but by characterizing it as a misrepresentation, you actually create a false impression of what the relation and the relata are, right? right? That's um, right. And, and part of the issue that I think comes up here is that um, – is that I almost think that in the consciousness problem, you have a, you have a problem that crosses over from science into philosophy, right? And in, in other words, yeah. you said that, you know, we're going to need at least psychology, um, um, evolutionary biology and psychology, um, which would include the science. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm going to say there's a third part of the stool, the third leg of the stool. And that's, and that's um, an account of personhood. Right. And sure. that's going to come from why? Because no matter what you do, the perspectival version of the problem persists. Right. Yes. Unless because what you constantly get to this point is of, okay, who is experiencing the illusion? Who right. is, who is monitoring the processes? And then you wind up, well, the person is right. But yeah. now you're no longer in the scientific image. Now you're in the manifest image. Correct. And, in other words, I almost think that the, that, that the problem of consciousness is a problem that straddles uh, evolutionary biology, um, um, uh, 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 psychology, including its physical, you know, neuropsychology and all that stuff, but then also um, uh, philosophy of language. Uh, uh, yes, 
Yes, um, absolutely. Um, and I that mentioned earlier, this is the problem the of language. language. That's an entirely in the manifest image. I Correct. think that partly the problem of consciousness is a prop- problem that arises out of perspectival language. Yes, I agree. That's, um, that's why I, I mentioned earlier, this is, this is in part, this is a, a problem of how we talk about stuff. Yeah. And that's why I object to certain ways of talking about stuff. Right. And, but, but the, in this, as far as the, the illusionists are concerned, one of the reasons I sort of push back about that thing, I think that, as I said, I think that the, the Dennett's analogy is actually useful, particularly when you, when you go on and say this, this, these icons have actually functional utility, right? But the reason I push back against, against that, that way of, of talking is because then we, we are told that, you know, we cannot rely on our, you know, on understanding our mental states and so on and so forth. It's like, well, yes, I can in the way in which I rely on icons on my desktop. Again, if I think, if I mislead myself into thinking that those icons are actually objects, right, then, then of course, I'm, I'm mis- I, I, this is incorrect. But if I understand what they are, and I say, okay, these, these are proxies, these are, these are just in order to simplify my life, they're really proxy, proxies for complex underlying processes, then, then it's fine. There is no misleading, so long as, and that's what I argue in my, in my response to the illusionist stuff, so long as there is a reliable causal connection between the icon, the representation, right, and the underlying process. And guess what guarantees that there is a reliable underlying connection under normal operating conditions? Evolution. Yeah. Because, right, because the evolution is the thing that guarantees, for instance, let me, let me give you a very personal example. So I'm partially colorblind, right? And I probably would have been dead uh, in the place to see because there are certain shades of green and red that I don't see. I don't discriminate. Right, especially for instance, red over black over black background, I just can't see it. Now, uh, today this is not a problem, of course, um, and I navigate the, the world fine. But the reason that uh, you know Daltonism and you know the, the, the inability to see colors, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, has a low frequency in the population is precisely because in the past at least this was a matter of life, literally a matter of life and death. Now, does that mean that when I when people see red or blue or whatever it is, they're somehow being misled? But there are icons on the on the desktop that they don't have. No, they they're not. Of course, there is no such thing as red yeah. out there. What's out there is electromagnetic uh, waves. Yeah. And I don't. I I don't. I, we cannot perceive electromagnetic waves directly. We represent them. Our system, uh, our sensorial system, does have a way to perceive the electromagnetic waves, and it represents them in a certain in a certain fashion, color red. Now, how do we know this? Uh, interestingly. That's not only because there are people who are affected, you know, and they cannot see red, but because you can actually now go there. We know enough about the physiology underlying visions that you can actually go there and play with the system, right? Change things around. So you actually cause mis- misperception of colors. And that, now the person is really not, now there is no, no longer a reliable co- correspondence between the icon and the underlying process. But that's because, in fact, the process is now the system is not working correctly. It's yeah. not working as evolution intended it to work. That's why I keep saying that we, it's, it's wrong to talk about, you know, misleading information. It's not misleading. No, it's no, functional. It's, yeah. And, and they say it's functional by way of being misleading, right? Yeah. Right. 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 Um, yes. um, um, because if it wasn't misleading, it would be, you couldn't cope with it. Right. And so, um, um, but, but the, it, it's, it's not, the reason why misleading is inapt is because that implies a relationship, um, 
of sort of almost like a failed mimesis or something, right? Um, um, right. Um, which is which is not what's going on at all. Um, no. It seems to me more like it's more relevantly at the level of uh, understood in the frame of um, levels of description, right? Um, and Correct. and the so-called and I'm scare quoting it emerging pro- characteristics that arise out of higher levels of description, right? Um, right. Um, look, I mean, part of the thing I was trying to get at in terms of just talking about the the language side of it is that um, the problem of consciousness doesn't arise for creatures that are conscious but are non-linguistic or non-conceptual, right? In the sense that it arises because we are able to adopt different perspectives, right? And, you know, one of the reasons why I think part of the reason why this problem doesn't puzzle me as much as some philosophers is I actually came to philosophy from literature. And uh-huh. one of the great things in literature about literature is the playing with perspective. Sometimes yes. it's the same novel. So for example, William Faulkner has a brilliant novel called As I Lay Dying, where each chapter is the same sequence of events from a different character's point of view. Yes. And one character yeah. is like a retarded child. The other ch- character is an old person. The other, And what's, you know, you could say, you could create a problem out of those multiple perspectives, you know, how can the same event have all these properties? And the answer is, right. there's no mystery about it. There's no mystery. The, the, the reason they have all these different properties is because they're being described from different points of view. Correct. Um, exactly. Um, and the I different like, levels of description. I feel like the consciousness problem is a problem like that. And that's why I'm tempted to say it's, it's a non-problem. Right? It, I it, agree. It, 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 it's a combination of elements that when you put them all together and look at them naively – seems incredibly problematic, but once you sort of pull them apart and say, oh, wait a minute, there's not going to be a unified account of consciousness. The right. scientists are going to tell us how the brain works, right? That's right. The, 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 the people over who are, in, in, who are novel writers and philosophers are going to talk about how adopting different perspectives works. Exactly. But not, they're and not going it. to be <laughs> exactly. No, and that's right. That's it. Kind of multiple that's it. stories. That's right. But and that, again, people want there so to be could... one, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it turns out again that um, Seller's view of this, you know, the stereoscopic view comes back into right. uh, into play, right? So he never said that. In fact, he explicitly said that you shouldn't try to reduce one view to the other. And so what you know, uh, sort of right. scientists who ignore the philosophy aspect of it are trying to do is to reduce the problem of consciousness only to the scientific aspect. What people like I think Goff and Chalmers are trying to do is actually to reduce it only to the manifest image, while in fact you need to keep an eye on both. Yeah. Because yeah. they're telling you information, they're giving you perspective that are that, are, that need to be integrated so you get the whole the full picture. But the, the full picture does come out of a number of sub-pictures right. uh, that don't necessarily relate directly to each other. And so if you try to relate them to each other directly and say, okay, I want to use the same language to encompass the whole thing, then that definitely is a mistake. Uh, they want to say they want to say that there's a single picture that is in a sense a collage. Yes. Whereas the correct thing is there's a single picture, but only from the there's only a single picture in the sense that if you look through multiple screens at once, you get a single impression, right? Yes. Um, but there's not a single picture, right? That's right. Because That's there's right. not a single thing you're talking about. You're talking about a bunch of different things. Yep. Exactly. That's, I, I completely agree. And that's why I was suspecting that the panpsychist and the illusionist actually are, are, have the same mistake. They that's mistake right. the subject as being about 
a, a single thing with a single solution when this, the subject really is multiple things with local solutions that when you look at them all together, yeah. give you a picture, but that's simply the result of looking through the multiple transparencies and seeing the single. Exactly. I, I agree. So like, look at that in a little bit more than an hour and 15 minutes, we solved the problem of consciousness. <laughs> All right. Well, we will write this up and our futures will be assured as going down as the quines of the 21st century. That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, you know, this was a, a wonderful distraction. Um, I won't lie, Massimo, and I'm sure you feel this. I'm very worried about you and about my family and um, being in the hot zone. And I pray oh. that please take care of yourself. Fortunately, you know how. You know we'll, how we'll, to we'll not. We'll do our best. <laughs> um, but yes. yeah, please be careful. And um, yes. we'll, we'll do our best. And hopefully we'll do a lot, of, a lot more of these in the future. This, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. Uh, take, oh, one last thing. I've not heard from, how is our book doing? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, um, we, I haven't heard any, any additional uh, sort of reports because the, the first official report, I think it's not even out because it's usually six months after publication. Um, but it already but, went into a second printing, am I correct? Correct. So it went already into the second printing, which means it's doing pretty well. I mean, definitely better than they expected because they expected the first printing to last a year and it only lasted a few weeks. So it's actually doing very well. Um, but we'll get the first report, I think, uh, after six months. So we'll see. And we're talking about uh, how to live a, a good life. How to life, live a good uh, life, so. of which um, um, we've already seen. And maybe you and I will talk about the book at some point. Um, um, since I know uh, Bob had you and Sky on, um, but I thought maybe you and I would talk about it at some point too. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'm good sure luck. there's more than one perspective. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> good luck with online teaching and uh, thank you. Take care Same of yourself. To you. Stay All right. Safe. Ciao.